as our kids are leaving, uh, I want you to indulge me just for a moment. Um, I know that we are um, here in Fairfield deep into 49er territory. And uh, what, what, maybe not you, but maybe what you don't know, and maybe you do, but you, you know my wife is a, is a native Washingtonian, right? Okay. <laughs> She's even wearing the colors. Uh, she dressed up my eight-year-old in the colors, too, seeing green and blue. But uh, anyway, so uh, her, her dad was a college football player and her brother, big into football. So it's, it, 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 Seahawks are huge to them. In fact, it's in their blood. And uh, it's in my wife's blood, too. And, and uh, yesterday, or, I'm sorry, Friday, uh, that, that kind of blood came out in the middle of Rayleigh's. And um, so we're in line, and there's a lot of people who are, you know, buying stuff for the big game today. And, and so we happen to have these chicken party wings, you know. And, and uh, so the, the person who's checking us out says, hi, you're getting ready for the game. And my wife says, go Seahawks. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, you know, I didn't really think anything of it, except that we're deep into... 49er territory, and, um, and it was just, for a moment, things kind of got quiet, and the guy, this is no joke, the guy in the aisle right in front of us, big guy, and looked like a biker, you know, he actually turns around, he looks at me, and he looks at my wife, and I'm like, holy smokes, I'm going to get killed because of your comments, you know, <laughs> but uh, anyway, we got out of there alive, and, and uh, the biker didn't uh, cause any problems, but I say all that so you can pray for our marriage um, after today. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hope you enjoy uh, um, this afternoon's festivities and uh, have a good time. Um, now that we're completely distracted, go Niners. <laughs> All right, Lord. Lord, just take away the distraction that I just created. Um, I wanted to encourage you this morning with, uh, with um, you know, in your life, um, with the word of Scripture at the beginning of a new year by just looking and, and focusing on what makes it possible for us as, as people who, who trust in Christ, or at least we profess to trust in Christ, and we want to see, or we should want to see, um, the world change as a result of our being here and being alive and, and serving him. And I wanted to encourage you um, at the beginning of a new year to do that. And, and I, I've taken us last week and this week to, to Luke chapter 10. These are instructions that Jesus has given to his disciples to do ministry. And I, and I believe in his instructions are these essentials that keep us on the, on the, on the, on the rails of, of life and, and keep us um, persevering in joy as we do God's ministry. So that's where we're going to be this morning is Luke chapter 10. Just two messages last week and this week. And, and I pray that um, you'll think about these truths, meditate upon these truths, and come back to them over and over again as um, I find the necessity to do. So um, before I, we open the word together, let me just once again pause and pray. Um, Father in heaven, we are, are we're grateful. And you don't want to say that with, uh, with a sense of lightness or without contemplation of what we're grateful for. And that is we're simply thankful this morning to rest in the simple fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, you are no longer angry at us because you look at us with the same perfection as you look upon your own son who is perfect to the core. The Lord, you delight in your, your children. You delight in us in a way that causes you to sing with delight and, and with joy because 
you, you, you have, have placed your hand of, of redeeming love upon us and you have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. You have promised us um, that you would make us sons and daughters and that we would see your face and that we have nothing to fear because your hand is with us, because your grace is with us. And we know, Lord, that you have been um, there in our past, that you're here in our present, and we know that you're going to be there in fullness in our future. Lord, we just ask that you would um, enable us to see what only eyes of faith can see, and that is the truth of your kingdom, um, that we would not be distracted by the, by the physical world um, to the point where we can't see that the very real world is the spiritual one and the, 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 the new world that's, that's uh, coming into being, and someday we will see with our own eyes. So, Lord, pray, I pray um, that your Spirit would encourage those who are here. Um, if we've been complacent or we've just gone through the motions of Christianity. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you would quicken us and remind us that that's not why we're here and to, to, um, to create in us a sense of urgency and a, and a sense of resolve and a sense of passion for the singular purpose that you've called us here, and that is to seek first your kingdom, uh, to seek Christ, and to see Christ um, advanced in our relationships and in our um, places of work and in our places of living. So will you just um, empower me, empower this place to hear your word um, as you intended it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to share with you something of my own experience, and I'm probably sure that, that it may um, resonate with you, but um, sometimes ministry, and all of us in all of life for the Christian is ministry. It's not just those who are called to be pastors, but I, and I hope you know this, that everything you do is supposed to be done in service to Christ. Um, but oftentimes, um, in our service to Christ, we don't always see a lot of completion, and sometimes we don't even see progress. Um, I, I sometimes uh, contrast that to how it feels to get a job done or a project done. I mean, yesterday was absolutely gorgeous weather, wasn't it? Um, I mean, who, who gets to live in a climate where it's in the 70s in the middle of winter when half of my friends are living in the polar ice cap in, you know, mid, the Midwest? Of course, I, I think I feel a little guilty about enjoying a sunny day given the fact that we're on the precipice of a rather substantial drought. But we enjoyed it yesterday and done the same. And, and um, we pruned hedges and we vacuumed cars and cleaned cars. And, and there's a sense of completion and satisfaction when you look back and say, hey, look what we did. The house looks better. Things look clean. And you feel that sense of completion. And, and, you know, I contrast that sometimes with kingdom work. That there isn't always that sense of completion. That you can't always see progress in, in, in what we're devoting our, our lives to. Um, Jesus put it this way. And I know many of you, if not most of you, all of you know the phrase where he says, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt. But he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven or you know, um, in, the, in the new creation. In other words, that's what we're supposed to be living for and we're supposed to be somehow working and, and uh, doing things in this life that materialize in, in, in the next. But those things are invisible. I mean, you, you can't really see what's lasting. And now you can see sometimes when God moves. I mean, you've, uh, maybe in your own life or the life of your, your, your child or, or even in a church, you look back over history and you realize you, there's these tremendous movements of Pentecost and the Reformation and some great awakenings in our own country that, that, that revolutionized our culture and society. And there's some massive workings of God's Spirit. But then there are other times where it just seems like the, the kingdom is moving forward silently and, and we're not seeing these these massive movements. And even when we do see these movements, however big or small, Sometimes there's a sense of uncertainty about it. I mean, 
as a parent, think about how you feel when you see your child maybe go to Hume Lake and make a profession of faith, and they come back and say, hey, I, 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 you know, I confess Christ, I invite him into my life, and I, I want to trust him and follow him. And you're like, that's awesome, and you want to throw a party, and you're like, well, God's moved to my child. And then two months later, they're going in the opposite direction, leaving you, the, you know, thinking, well, what was it real? Was it real, or is it, is it just Memorex? You know, was it a, a fake? Um, and I, I know a lot of us feel that way, and I, we're not alone. The Apostle Paul could say on different points in his life that he questioned whether he was or had run in vain. That is, his ministry had no eternal effect. So there's always this sense of uncertainty about our, our work here. Um, and that's, that, that's, that's, that's part of why I think the Lord gave us these instructions, because there's going to be these ebbs and flows in history and ebbs and flows in our lives when, when we're going to be discouraged by the fact that we don't see him necessarily working, that, that it seems as if um, the work that we do has no tangible, visible result. And for that very reason, I, I, I wanted us to look at this because I think it's tremendously encouraging. In fact, I, I find it encouraging for my life, and, and these are just truths that, that you have to like come back to over and over and over again. You know, the Spirit of God is powerful, but the Spirit of God uses means. And one of the primary means he uses is truth. That means you come back to truth over and over again. Say, Spirit of God, help me to trust and live in light of these truths and make these truths live in me. Um, that is, that's the truth that the, the Spirit uses as a means of, of helping us live out his, um, his, his kingdom work for us. And, and as I defined last week, I believe um, that true kingdom ministry, which all of us are called to, is not limited to what takes place in or connected to a church building. In fact, everything that you do, um, provided you, it's not sin, and it's um, done to the glory of Jesus and to the loving service of people with the... Uh, prayerful hope of, of having an opportunity to share of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Everything that's done in service to Christ and love for other people with them, you know, that desire to share and testify, all of that, everything is kingdom work. In other words, what you're doing when you leave at 5, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning to go do what you do uh, 40, 60 hours a week, that is kingdom work provided you're doing it for him and in service to, to other people. Um, well, how is it that you can do that um, with a sense of joy and perseverance and hope. That's where these instructions come that Jesus gives 72 disciples when he sends them out. Last we, we looked at part one, kind of um, essentials of kingdom ministry, and we, we looked at the fact that Jesus taught them that they would be divinely provided for, the divine provision of everything. He says, God will take care of you as you go. He gave them a realistic expectation that, you know what, you're going to go out like lambs among wolves. In other words, it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. And then the third one, he isolated the task, which is basically to, to do the work of the kingdom um, in both working and word. That is there to, to work in such a way to manifest the kingdom, healing in particular, and also to speak and testify of what God had done in Jesus Christ. Well, here we come to three more. Now, last week I said I'd give you two more, but you know, there's one that I just had to add because I think it, um, well, I didn't have to add it. It's already there. But to bring out, bring out for you that I think is, is a, a counterbalance to something I said last week. That sounds funny, like I'm going to read into Scripture. Something that can happen, but I do my best not to let happen. So, last week he gave his pep talk, the initial instructions, and then the text doesn't record it, but... The idea is that they went out and did their ministry, and then what the text does record is when they get back, and that's what we read here and where we pick up in verse 17. So they went out and did their thing. We don't know exactly how it went other than what they say here. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, 
Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know, they're, they're stoked, and you would be too. I mean, this is this one of those physical manifestations of the power of Christ. I mean, it's, they're ministering in his name. That means in the power of Christ's kingdom. And the result of them going out in the power of Christ's name is that like the kingdom of darkness is crumbling. That's why Jesus says here, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is, he sees that the gates of hell cannot stand against um, God's people as they go out in word and work to do his kingdom work. That is, they're crumbling. And these guys are seeing it firsthand, like the, these demons. And, um, you know, you can just imagine... Um, with a little bit of Lord of the Rings uh, vision, just how immense or powerful um, the demonic is, you know? Gandalf, you shall not pass. And, and here are the kingdom people, the disciples going out saying, not only will you not pass, but you're going down, is kind of what they're, what they're doing. And, and they're seeing it, they experience it, and they're, they're excited. And uh, they're seeing this magnificent success in ministry. And, and Jesus goes on to say this. He says, behold... I have given you authority. Now, again, this is not to the 12, the apostles, but this is to the 72. And I think by extension to those of us even in the 21st century who are followers of Jesus. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, because this has been misunderstood, let me just tell you what Jesus is not saying in verse 19. He's not saying that his disciples are going to be able to take cobras home as pets or scorpions without fear of them biting them. He's, he's not saying that my disciples are going to be able to do parlor tricks with rattlesnakes. That's, that's a complete misunderstanding of, of the symbolism of, of the text. I think this is an echo of Genesis chapter 3, in which, if you remember, when the Lord came to the man and the woman and then to the serpent, and he said, you know what, the day is coming when a seed from this woman, that is a child from this woman to come, is going to step on your head. And that's Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks of serpents and scorpions, he's speaking symbolically of the powers of evil and principalities and so forth that want to destroy everything that is godlike. He's basically saying um, you're going to have authority over them. As you go out and preach and minister, these gates of hell are going to fall. That's, that's pretty powerful language. And then he makes this promise at the end, and that's the essential that I wanted to draw out. He makes this promise, and nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. That is an essential for us to come back to over and over and over again. That is the promise of divine eternal protection. Now, that of course begs the historical question. Um, A lot of Christians died. Jesus was um, attacked emotionally, verbally, physically, and ended up with a life on a cross. So he got hurt. The earliest record of the Christian church, a lot of people got hurt. Peter and John were threatened. Peter was thrown in prison. James was uh, executed. Stephen was stoned. People were persecuted, so they had to, to flee their hometown. And so it goes through history. That, that it's, um, the world has made a hash out of Christians. So in what sense does Jesus promise that nothing shall hurt you? And I think it means two things related to each other. One 
is that he promises that no one can touch you apart from the explicit divine permissive will from the throne of heaven. And trusting that no one can touch a hair of your head until it's time. And that was Jesus' understanding that no one could take his life until that appointed time. And when the Lord gives permission from the throne, hear this, it's always for a good and redemptive purpose uh, in our lives or others. Sometimes, like Paul, understood that he was suffering for the glory of other people. That is to bring them to Christ. So there is always a redemptive purpose when, when, when we experience that hurt. Now that's part of it. But I think even more to the point of what he's saying is that, that at the end of the day, they might be able to attack, hurt your body, but they cannot touch that part of life in you called a soul. They cannot touch that part of you. The body's one thing. The soul is another thing. You remember what Jesus said when he said, um, he's instructing people saying, fear not what man can do to the body. In Jesus' estimation of things, what you can do to the body is small change. Rather, fear him who can cast both body and soul, that part of you, um, that eternal part of you, into hell. And I think what Jesus is saying is like, you know what? Um, even if the world does the absolute worst, which is take your life, they can't touch your soul. Because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not sword, not famine, not death itself. So you don't have to be afraid when you stand before emperors or you stand before people like Pontius Pilate who has power and authority to take your life. Because one, you know who has real authority over him and you also know that even if your life is taken, it's secure. It's hidden in Christ Jesus. No one can take that from you. And that is where our sense of confidence and where our, our courage comes from. As he said earlier to us, we are sent out like lions or like, like lambs amongst wolves. But to understand that we are lambs in the hand of a God whose love will never let us die or go. And we, we walk forward and minister in that confidence. So that's a truth we have to all constantly keep in mind, especially as we move forward as a culture, to remember that when we face opposition, Jesus promised, listen, it's going to come, but no one can really, at the end of the day, hurt you. So don't be afraid. That is an essential, I I think, that he gives to us, and a a powerful one that, again, you have to come back to over and over again because we're so subject to fear. Another one that he gets and gives, and here I should preface it by saying, you know, as I said, there's times of great success in ministry where, where you actually see the kingdom moving forward and lives changed, and, and then there are other times when, when it's not quite that way. It's not as visibly distinctive, and it's not displayed, and, and so I think that's why he gives this next instruction. I mean, here they're all excited about demons are trembling and leaving, and, and he says to them in verse 20, nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice. This is the joy um, of kingdom life. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy doing what he's called us to do wherever he's placed us in any and everything he's called us to. 
Obviously, he wants us to enjoy, if we write music, he wants us to enjoy writing music. If we, if we love working on machinery in the name of Christ, and he wants us to enjoy, at some level, us working on machinery. If, you, if we're called to be a pastor or a preacher, he wants it at some level for us to enjoy um, what we do. It's not saying you can't enjoy it. He, what he is saying is that the priority of our joy is always found in, ultimately, our relationship with God. Um, that our names are written in heaven. That is... That, that, that there is an, in a book where our names are written indelibly. God's people, my son, my daughter. And, and, and it's, it's there that we're his. We belong to him. We've been redeemed. We've been freed. We're his, you know? Um, beloved eternally and significantly and intensely and intimately. And that's, that's where we find our, our joy. Not in the successes. And you can figure out why... It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that, you know, if we attach our joy to the rise and fall of our successes in life, well, then you're not going to experience this kind of ongoing, persevering constancy of joy. It's going to be a roller coaster ride of, of elation followed by depression and elation followed by depression as you ride the wave of, 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 of success. And it's like, no, that's not where, where my, my disciples' joy is ultimately to come from. You come back over and over and over again to the simple fact that you're my child. You're my child. Because there are going to be times in which it feels like your life is not doing anything significant. And what are you going to do then when you don't feel like God is using you or, or, or you're not seeing fruit? What do, what, how, where are you going to find your joy? And he's like, hey, you know, you remember who you are. Don't attach your value or your worth or your sense of elation on how successful, but your simple, simply put your relationship with me. You know, you look back over, over history and even into the history of the Bible, you realize that some amazing men have, in their time, accomplished what seems like absolutely nothing. You look at a prophet like Jeremiah, and he wrote a long book that goes by his name. And... Um, he preached at a very difficult time, prophesied at a very difficult time, and there is no record of anyone actually turning that I can find back to the Lord. In other words, from all contemporary perspectives, the prophet died a failure. There was no visible success. You know, when you, and it, when you come to Jesus, another example, of course you see miracles and so forth and these dramatic um, works of power in his life, but you know, at the end of his life, at the end of his life, he's, 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 he's hanging on a cross, he's humiliated, stripped, abandoned, and forsaken, and denied, and betrayed by those closest to him. And for that moment, for all practical purposes, in the eyes of the Jews and the Romans, his life was an utter failure. A lot of people who have ministered outside the Bible, same thing. You take a guy like William Carey, you know, 19th century um, 1800s uh, missionary to India. You know, he, he went there and um, lost two wives in the process, lost children in the process. Um, he lost translations of the Bible in a fire um, that took years and years and years to write. And he didn't experience a convert until seven years after he was there. You realize, man, by all contemporary standards, this is no, nothing to write home about. It's just like he's not a very successful missionary. And the fact of the matter is that's how it's going to be sometimes. Is in authenticity and sincerity of heart, you're serving the Lord, doing what you're supposed to do in his name, trying to love people and praying for opportunity for you to speak forth the 
the greatness of who Jesus is, and it's just going to seem like it's absolutely going nowhere again. You know it, you're not alone. All those men experienced that and, and far more. So where do you find your joy in those moments? One place. And that is simply put um, that you know you are a recipient of God's redeeming steadfast love and he loves you. That's it. You know, there's a, um, there's a famous preacher by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones from Britain, arguably one of the best preachers in the 20th century, uh, passed away in the mid part of the century. And um, first he was a doctor, gave up his medical profession in order to become a preacher. And you can still hear his sermons and read his sermons um, online and in books. And, and um, it was said by a close friend of his, and, and uh, I reminded myself to look this up again, and yes, it is indeed true, that a close friend reported that at the end of Martin Lloyd-Jones's life, I mean, a tremendously fruitful, long ministry, he was for all practical purposes, bedridden, unable to preach, unable to even hardly get up to go to the restroom. And one of his close friends asked him, like, how do you deal with, you know, a life that's so fruitful, and now at the end of your life, you're so limited so that you can't do those things anymore? It's a question of, now where do you get your joy? The things that used to be successful, you're not doing anymore. And his simple response was Luke 10, 20, when he just said, Rejoice, I rejoice that my name is written in heaven, not my successfulness. Tell you, brothers and sisters, that is the the center. That's the constant well out of which we draw joy. Not what we do, but our relationship with the Lord. And you look back at the men of the Bible, that's where they found it too. They delighted themselves in the Lord. At the times in which King David in the Psalms felt his greatest attacks and greatest um, opposition are times when he said, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. That's Psalm 3. Or Psalm 27, when he's surrounded by armies that want to devour his flesh is what he says. And he says, one thing in the context of all this mayhem I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house, I may be with the Lord forever all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That's the center. Not just in terms of living life in relation to success, that's the center, but also even when you're experiencing times of pain and suffering and it, and it, and it just kind of pulls your soul down. It's like that's still the same place you've got to come back to over and over and over again, no matter what's happening in terms of success or even pain. It's just... My one place where I find joy is my relationship with the Lord. That's an essential. That's not just an essential. That's central. Then one final one in this passage, and it has to do with where true results of success come from. And it's expressed in Jesus' prayer. Uh, There's a recorded prayer of rejoicing in the Spirit to the Father, and and this is what Jesus says. Um, And in it, you find the fact that Jesus is Point three, rejoicing in God's sovereign grace over the results in ministry. He writes this, or he writes this. Luke writes this. It's a recorded prayer of Jesus. In that same hour, he rejoiced. And think about that for a moment. You read back over chapter 10, there have been people who have already rejected the kingdom. 
Jesus talked about people who would not just reject but be antagonistic towards the kingdom, and yet others experienced and embraced the kingdom in a way that transformed their lives. And, and here, in those different responses, Jesus responds by, by praising and rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Now who's in charge, according to what Jesus rejoices in, of turning on the lights in the human soul? Who's the one who enables eyes to see and get who Jesus is and believe who he says he is and believe in what he's done? Well, Jesus rejoices in the simple fact that it's the Father who hides it from the wise and he reveals it to the humble or to children. By wise, I don't think he means people who are smart. I think he means people who are wise in the eyes of the world and subject to human pride whom God is pleased to hide the truth from, just to show us that it's not just the intellectuals who get it at, rather it's a position and disposition of heart of someone who knows I can't get it by myself, and God's like, ha, ah, now you're in a place I'm going to reveal it. That's what he says. He's, he's, he's rejoicing in the fact that, you know what, God's in charge of the illumination of the soul. He's in charge of opening the eyes. He's in charge of people getting it. And then Jesus goes on even more remarkably to say, no one knows the Father except me, and no one knows me except the Father. That's a pretty, pretty tight-knit knowledge. And Jesus, I think, implies that he, in fact, is God in that. And that means the, the authoritative revealer of the Father, Jesus says, is me. And I get to reveal him to whomever I choose, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, I realize that this causes problems for some people. Jesus didn't say this to be exclusive. He, say, he said it to give his followers confidence that at the end of the day, the kingdom ministry rests on my shoulders. I'm the one who turns on the lights for people. You go out and do my work, and I'll be the one who opens the eyes of the blind. Some it's going to be hidden from, and others I'm going to open their eyes to, so that all the credit goes to me. And if you look back again over chapter 10, you realize the people who reject it, that rejection falls squarely upon their shoulders and they are to blame. The people who get it and come to Christ, um, that credit rests squarely upon the shoulders of a sovereign God who opened your eyes. That's it. And I think this is him rejoicing in this is something we should rejoice in. Rejoicing in the simple fact that, you know, people get it because God is gracious and it's his work. I can't, you can't, we can't bear the burden of thinking that if I was more talented, if I was more intellectual, if I, if I could argue better, if I could be more persuasive, if I knew all of the scientific arguments, well then, just maybe, just maybe they'd believe. There's a place for understanding and using those things, but understand, no one here turns on the lights. There's only one person who does, and that's the Lord. So we can rejoice, even when people are rejecting or others are accepting that, Lord, this is your work. And that brings a tremendous amount of freedom in any kind of ministry that we do. You just be faithful and leave the results up to a sovereign God who Jesus rejoices in here. And that enables you to do what you do with joy. With joy. 
Those, those things are just, I, I can't tell you how important they are. Knowing that you're protected, knowing that it's your relationship with God that's the center of your joy, and knowing that the results, as you continue to walk and live your life, you know, serving in the name of Jesus, serving um, the, 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 the needs of others, and, 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 and when the opportunity arises to speak forth the unsearchable riches of Christ, that, 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 that God's going to handle the results. And that's, that's remarkable. You know those three individuals that I talked about, Jeremiah, Jesus, and William Carey? I, I'm reflecting on their life. You realize that, that God hid, at least in terms of Jeremiah's life, almost all of the eternal fruit from his life. I, you know, the very man who died without a convert was the same man who wrote um, prophecies about the coming of the Son of Man and for the, for the, the coming of the new covenant and, and that people, generations after he died, would read and meditate and be drawn to Jesus as a result of his life and his ministry. In other words, that eternal fruit he never saw. Um, Jesus, you know, he dies for all practical purposes in that moment of failure and yet he laid the foundation for a whole new world whole new creation. William Carey, you know, digging in the granite of Indian soil, trying to bring about kingdom work, and, and his, 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 his legacy, his, his work, has left an indelible print on the social culture of, of India. That tells me that, you know what, God's in charge of the time and place of, of the fruit in our lives, and probably most of it we'll never see. But we can trust, because he's in charge of the results, that there is going to be fruit. And that gives you courage to just continue to do what God's called you to do. And most of it's going to be mundane. You want a firecracker life and, you know, see the sparks go off and see, you know, people healed and waters parted. But that's not always going to happen. Most of life is just doing the same thing day after day as a dad, as a worker, as a mom. And that's important for us to recognize that in that, God's kingdom work is done. You know, and I'm going to close with this. I... I, um, what came to my mind as I was thinking about this kingdom work is I kept thinking about a man um, placing invisible temple stones in his life. Use your imagination for a moment. Invisible stones. Let's just say he's a man who, who's a, a mechanical technician at a local plant. And he goes to work every day, wakes up at 5, gets their clocks in, and he maintains equipment, machinery. Machinery he knows he's going to have to replace or maintain tomorrow. A seemingly non-eternal work. And he's doing it for a company that he knows will not last forever. However, this man goes to work every day, working on equipment that he knows at some point are going to break down and need replacing or, or, or maintaining, not believing some bad church theology that he heard when he was a kid, which is the only thing that matters and is eternal, is church work. Instead, he goes to work believing each day in the mundane work of working on machinery and maintaining machinery, that doing it in service to Jesus for the benefit is of employers and those he serves with, with the hope and the prayer of being able to testify to the hope that he has in Jesus Christ. And day after day, year after year, he continues to go to work just doing that, believing this to be true. And each day, visualizing that he's planting an invisible temple stone, day 
after day after day after day. Decade, let's just say 40 years go by. The man go and work each day doing something that Christianity today would never report. Never make news in the Christian media. He just had a simple, mundane life of serving Jesus as a mechanical um, technician. But believing that his work mattered. That his work mattered. And that each day he was, he was putting an invisible stone in place. And after four decades of working on machines that would break down for a company that would ex- eventually cease to exist, the man passes away. His funeral is nothing to be other than just a simple, continual, fervent, not fervent, I'm thinking faithful man, but nothing to write home about. I pass on the other side of the veil of the new creation, and I see something entirely different. I can see Jesus there going, I'm waiting for you. I have something to show you. And I picture Jesus taking them by their arm, and they pass a little corner, and before them, um, Jesus points at this, this temple that absolutely defies description. It is unparalleled in its glory, its splendor, and its beauty. And it is adorned with every kind of jewel and precious stone. It's so brilliant you can hardly even look at it, and yet it, it solicits the gaze of everybody in the new creation. And Jesus says, now check this out. Look up at the pediment of the temple. You see that? I put your name on all those stones because that's what I was building through you each day you went to work, believing that your work mattered. Stone upon stone upon stone, upon stone. And that, my friend, is going to last forever. And the truth of the matter is, I believe that's true. Never underestimate or diminish the importance of simple work that God has given you to do in his name, in service to people, with the hope and prayer that you'd be able to testify why you do what you do in the way that you do. Because it matters. You go to work each day, and, 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 and you do a lot of mundane things, but you know what? They are not mundane to the Lord. And for you to know that everything you do in this life unto him matters. And even though you don't see the stones today, the fact of the matter is they will materialize on the day in which Jesus says to us, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Now when that day comes for you and it comes for me, what is it that we will see? Are you in what you're doing, however menial the world might say it is, are you placing those invisible temple stones, trusting that though you can't see the eternal significance of it now, you believe that your work for him in his name and in service to people matters. That's Christianity, brothers and sisters. It's, there's nothing in your life that's not wholly sacred unto him, done for him, offered as worship. However menial, grand, micro or macro, it all matters as we serve him in this kingdom ministry. Trusting in him for divine provision. Recognizing it's going to be hard. We are like lambs sent amongst wolves. 
recognizing the task is simple. To work and speak the works and words of Christ. To recognize we're eternally, eternally protected. To know that our ultimate and deep joy is found in our relationship with the Lord, not in our, our, the visible success. Trusting ultimately that the God who is gracious will manage and bring about the fruitfulness of the final results of our lives here on earth. You're here for a reason. Your life matters, and I hope you believe that. And I hope you endeavor to serve Jesus each day in this new year, however mundane, knowing that you're placing an invisible stone upon an invisible stone, which indeed will materialize in the new creation. Lord, grant us uh, the eyes to see, the heart to believe that this is indeed true. May we each day be able to work as unto you, knowing that it matters. Maybe not in the world's eyes, and maybe never catching a headline, or even the attention of other Christians. But may we do so knowing that it matters to you, and the works that we do unto you as of a love and adoration to you, they're sweet in your, your, your heart. You rejoice over the simple works of your people done in your name. Encourage us in this new year, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Would you stand and join us?